Hey everybody, I'm Joey Neal and I like natural history. Welcome to What Do You Like, the podcast where we get to know a person through their passions and hobbies. Today we are joined by maybe the most educated guest on the podcast so far. Um, He is a PhD student in the Ecology and Evolution Biology program at Rice University in Houston, Texas. Uh, He is also uh, my former roommate and probably knows too much about me that I don't know if I like being recorded. Um, but I'm very happy to welcome Joey Neal to the podcast today. How are you doing, Joey? Doing well. How about you, Jair Bear? I am doing fine. This is podcast number five. I can't believe we made it this far. Um, oh, no, this is podcast number six. Oh, no. See, I have so many podcasts now that I can't remember what number we're on. Uh, that's a, I, I'm just uh, really happy that this is kind of taking off as it is. It's been a joy to have these conversations, and I'm really happy to have the conversation with you today uh, because uh, some other topics we've talked about, as people have listened, uh, we've, done, we've had someone talk about board game design, powerlifting, Digimon. Um, we had someone talk about Dungeons and Dragons. But now we're getting down to, to real information that people should know about our Earth and where it came from. We're talking about natural history today. Now, you, obviously, doctoral student in ecology, so you have, you've taken your passion for natural history and basically have turned it into your current career and, like, future plans. Uh, And I really just want to kind of start the conversation, like, what about natural history has really drawn you to it? Yeah, sure. Uh, so first of all, I would like to point out that uh, before this, I swore to myself I was not going to call you Jer Bear on the podcast, and I immediately let it slip out. I apologize. Um, it, it's okay. So back to the question. Um, so really, I think what what makes me so interested in it is just how batshit crazy nature is in natural history, and how many like crazy creative ways that nature gets around solving problems or even creates its own problems and it's just so so many different things to study and 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 learn that i just it it never ceases to fascinate me gotcha it's like a never-ending puzzle yeah wow that's i mean that's a great way to kind of look at our world like and and it very much is ever-changing some of it is just natural just how organisms change some of it is how they interact with other organisms like how humans inter- inter- interfere with the nature overall um i really want to kind of dive real quickly into when did you kind of first find this love of natural history was it like uh as a child like falling in love with nature was it school like where did you kind of really fall in love with na- the the natural environment Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, I'm not sure that's always for like personal statements on like grant applications and stuff. You know, everyone's always tempted to 
start there and to the point where it's kind of cliche. But um, for for me, uh, I guess I have memories of like watching uh, Animal Planet with my dad and, you know, the, the whole stereotypical watching the cheetah chase down the gazelle and, and all of that. Um, so that surely had an influence in it. I think I also was just always very uh, creative or, or not creative, a very um, curious child and would just go up to any little creature that looked like it did not want to be touched and touch it, of course. Um, maybe some of them I put in my mouth, I'm not sure. Um, but yeah, I, I, it's hard to pinpoint an exact original uh, motivation. I will say that when I was little, my dream job was to uh, move to Canada, study wolves by integrating into a wolf pack, because I saw some documentary where some scientists did that. Um, so yeah, I, I guess my answer is, an, is not an answer to your question, but just several anecdotes about, about my early experiences with it. Well, I think that does answer my question. I think that really that, that shows that this isn't like there wasn't like an aha moment. And I think I think it's easy to to kind of want that, but that's not how the world works. Um, there's not mm-hmm. those aha moments. Um, what I think is really interesting that it shows like there's like this collection of just life experiences that kind of drove you to that path. Now, I really want to follow up on that wolf pack plan. How mm-hmm. old were you when you decided that that was not a feasible option for you? <laughs> not a feasible option. Okay. Okay. Um, I would say I held on to that dream until I was mm, 12. I'm not sure uh, if that's a respectable age or not. I think so. I think, it. I think it's a respectable age. I mean, uh, so if there are any parents uh, listening to this podcast with their children in the car, um, you might want to skip ahead about three minutes. Uh-oh. Uh, but that kind of brings up, I once uh, had a friend when I studied abroad in England, there's one of, one of the other classmates there. She had grown up in this magical world where she believed in Santa Claus until she was mm-hmm. 13 years old. Mm-hmm. And I was just in such awe that she got to live in that wonderful world where a magical being delivered presents once a year based on how good you were for that year until she was 13 years old. Like, cause wow. I, I think, I think eight or nine is pretty standard. I figured it out at seven. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, some, some families don't even do that. Obviously if they're not Christian based, they won't really follow the, 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 the Christmas holiday. And there's some uh, like Christians that are very much like, no, Santa's not real. Don't, that we're paying for all those presents. So be thankful to us. Um, so in other words, the whole like majority of the world doesn't follow that. Yes. Uh, yes. Uh, a large majority of the world doesn't follow that. Yeah. Um, and but in it, my defense, I would, I would like to say that joining a wolf pack and studying it is slightly more realistic than Santa Claus in that there has at least been one person who's done it. That is true. Hey, historically, there there may have been one person in Germany who gave okay, a few okay. kids gifts. So uh-huh. there is or some historical Santa background. Or, or Krampus. Yeah, either way. <laughs> um, but I think that's, that, that's interesting that like, because I know when I was a kid, I definitely, one of my dreams was to be a dolphin trader. Okay. Uh, that was big back in the 90s, the whole marine it, yeah. biology thing. 
Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think Free Willy was a big influence. Oh, yeah. And then mm. growing, growing up in Chicago, we had the Shed Aquarium, mm-hmm. um, which has the Pacific. Fish. What? That's the fish. Yes. But they like a specific dolphin, like a Pacific River dolphin or something like that. They do, yeah, they do have a river dolphin there. Yes. Or some. Some of them. And then the Burfield Zoo has bottlenose dolphins. So, like, Chicago is definitely a hotbed for a lot of marine life, even though it's pretty much in the middle of the United States. Uh-huh. Uh, so definitely was drawn to that. So I definitely, I can understand kind of the connection there, but for me, there was a period, there's a, a time where I kind of appreciated the natural world and animals, but did not want to kind of make that my career. Sure. So you're in, you're 12 years old. You just realized like, you know what? I don't think I can live with wolves. I'm kind of old for that. I don't think I can keep up with them. Uh, what did you kind of, in that, in that moment, did you then start to look at like, well, I can kind of follow this in a different direction Mm -hmm. in educational way or where, where'd you kind of go from there? Well, there I realized that, uh, I would have to settle and instead integrate into a pride of lines. Okay. Which is always my plan B. Um, no. So from there I would say, uh, so as you know, I, before pursuing a career in biology, I pursued a career in music. So at some point around that same time, maybe when I was around 13 or 14 was when I played in my first orchestra and that was kind of put me on my little eight year sidetrack of pursuing a career in music. Um, and so it wasn't until I then uh, became a grad school dropout, uh, which I will forever be for the rest of my life. Uh, and uh, went back to school for biology that then I kind of became more aware of, of just what studying biology and ecology actually is. You know, I mean, I, I think a lot of people, even adults, don't really understand how, you know, what science and in, in, in biology and really any of the sciences actually is on the day to day. So that was really what, what kind of put me on that path was kind of being made aware of the kind of what realistically it means to be a biologist. Well, I think this would be a good time for you to kind of, again, this is not a uh, biological sciences podcast. We're trying to just learn about you, but I think it could be a very good help for the listeners to just tell us a little bit about what the day-to-day like. Day-to-day sure. is like in a, in a biological sciences lab or whatever mm-hmm. you're studying. Yeah. Um, so I will specifically talk about ecology, which is what, what I study. Um, because it is, is a bit different from more of like a cellular or molecular uh, kind of biology lab. But ecology broadly is the study of how organisms interact with one another and their environment. Uh, and more specifically, I study community ecology, which is how different species interact with one another. So from a day-to-day, I'll do anything from... Uh, spending the entire day on my computer doing, you know, statistics, analyzing things to uh, reading papers. Of course, I spend many, many, many hours reading papers to going out into the field. Uh, For instance, my lab studies uh, freshwater ponds. And so we go out, put on some waders and uh, get some dip nets and kind of drag them around the the ponds and see what we catch. We get little uh, uh, tadpoles and dragonfly and damselfly larvae is what we're, we're targeting. And then also uh, in the lab, I do some experiments. So for instance, I've been uh, spending a lot of hours 
uh, super gluing suction cups, 600 suction cups onto 200 soup containers as a way to kind of jerry-rig the, the kind of equipment that I need to use to be able to put uh, the, the organisms that I'm studying, which is this little crustacean called uh, Daphnia or the prey, and the predators are uh, some, some, some freshwater insects like diving beetles and these little crazy guys called back swimmers, and, um, which is ultimately what is gonna go into those soup containers. But um, anyway, it's a lot of setup like that and then ultimately actually conducting experiments where you, know, you, you prepare for months and then finally you get it going and then something ultimately goes wrong, of course, the first time, so you gotta fix it and then you do it again and then something goes wrong again and then you fix it. And ultimately you get a final product, which is data. And that's what you go back to the computer and analyze. And writing papers, lots of writing papers. Gotcha. I mean, I think that that makes sense. Um, and I think in, in the greater society, we kind of view like these scientific studies as like just magical discoveries. Um, mm. But we forget about like all the legwork that's required for even the smallest of studies, because you, in order to get any usable data, you have to really factor out a lot of variables. So you're testing only one thing. And you bring up a great point, like you're going to fail a bunch of times. Um, was there any difficulty, like when you kind of transitioned more into that, like dealing with like the idea that you're, you're going to fail and things aren't always going to work out or were you very easy to adapt to that right from the start? Um, that's a good question. It, it, I think it was a mixture of both. Um, I mean, for, for one, you definitely learn kind of pretty quickly as you, as you start off conducting experiments, especially if you have an advisor who kind of wants to give you space to make those mistakes, which a lot of times they do. They, you know, they, they want the students to learn from their mistakes. So in that case, you, you usually learn pretty quickly. You know, you'll have spent days, weeks preparing for something, and then you'll make one tiny little mistake that can miraculously ruin the entire thing. Um, so in that sense, I definitely made those mistakes. I had those experiences. Um, also, I think, I think my, my experience with, you know, like I said, pursuing the career in music and then just kind of, it wasn't that I failed in that there was never a point where I felt like I couldn't do it, but I did essentially abandon that path altogether, which I think kind of predisposed me a little bit more to being a little bit more adaptable to change and whatnot, perhaps. Yeah. I mean, that, that makes, that makes a lot of sense. And I mean, I can speak from the, my experience and that I can kind of relate there where I changed my major four times in college. I took a year off uh, and then I came back and I think the, my last three semesters I was back at school were probably the, my, uh, I think I gained the most out of it because again, that's, that's when I kind of felt I took ownership of my studies. And it seems like that kind of happened with you. As soon as you have that, like you, that brick wall where you're like, I can't do music. This is not where I'm mm. going to go. I think it really leads you to kind of like look inside yourself and really discover what you care about. Um, mm. And I, I do want to kind of, and feel free if this is going too deep, I don't know. I don't know how deep you want to go. Like, what was it like that moment that you realized, like, I'm leaving grad school for music? 
I can't mm-hmm. be here anymore. Like what, what was that moment like? And what, like, what were your, the thoughts going through your head? How did it feel? Like what, what, mm-hmm. what was that life event for you? Yeah. Um, I mean, it was hands down the hardest decision I've ever made. Um, and it started what was kind of a really rough year essentially in my life. Um, I, I mean, essentially the, the reason why I, I ultimately chose to drop out was just, as you said, I just sort of realized that it wasn't what I wanted to do. And it, it wasn't instantaneous. It was the product of, you know, many months of really thinking about it and whatnot. But um, there, there wasn't like one, one major event that made me make the decision. It was more so just kind of the gradual accumulation of kind of getting us of having that sense of, you know, this isn't, I don't want to do this eight hours a day, every day for the rest of my life. And probably what, what was the hardest thing about it was I couldn't shake the feeling that I was letting everyone down. Essentially, you know, I'd had so many teachers, professors in my undergrad, my parents, all these people invest time and money and energy and effort into getting me to that point. And then I was just going to throw it all away and, and go off and do something else. Um, so that was really one of the biggest things that was running through my mind. Um, I, there was, of course, a huge sense of relief. Um, it was almost like if, if anyone if listening has ever had to break up with somebody or something and, you know, you, you really don't want to do it. You're putting it off. You're putting it off. It's going to suck. But then once I actually get it out of the way, then suddenly, you know, it's, you, it's like this huge weight has been lifted off your chest. And so there was, it wasn't altogether a terrible experience in that I did experience that sort of like, okay, now I can breathe. I, you know, I can, I'm not locked into doing this anymore. And it was the first time I'd felt that way in in a long time. Do you think the, that like feeling where you, you felt like you kind of let your, your family and former professors down, did you kind of use that feeling to drive you even further in your next kind of, direction uh or did you even that might not be something you can like quantify or like really understand but do you did Mm. you feel like there's like a an added drive to make sure your next step was successful because you made this like huge shift um yeah i mean i certainly was highly motivated uh to to not stop again for one <laughs> i mean i didn't want to call up my parents again five years later and then say actually i'm not going to do this anymore i mean there, there was definitely a, a, a very big sense of kind of shame honestly kind of tied to that that uh you know the, the sense of letting them them down and everything and I, I i definitely felt like i did not want to relive that and i didn't want to compound that by doing it over again um in terms of if other than that, if I felt like it, it was a big motivator, honestly, no, not really. I mean, it, it, it certainly made me, like I said, not want to stop, but it, it didn't necessarily make me like want to do better or anything like that. Gotcha. I think that's, that's pretty healthy because there is a chance, like obviously at some point you thought music's going to be where I'm going to go hundred percent. This is kind of the path I'm going down. And at some point you realize it. I mean, that could have happened in yeah. ecology. Uh, you could, especially when, as you kind of move up, um, you deal with the, the, I guess the less fun aspects of it. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, but it looks like that hasn't deterred you at all. And the fact that you're continuing on to be a PhD student and hopefully soon will be a full professor somewhere doing research and also passing on the knowledge. Mm-hmm. Fingers crossed. I mean, I, I'm pretty confident that you'll get there. Oh, oh thanks. Uh, yeah, no problem. You've, as someone, as, as someone who's lived with you, I can definitely see that there's not what you might view as failure is not something that others would view as failure. Hmm. Uh, so I definitely think there's, there's success in, in your future. And all I kind of want to look at, so you're, you're all doing all these studies. What is the, like when you have a successful experiment and you get usable data, mm-hmm. what does that feel like? Is it like just excitement? Is it relief? Like where, what does that feel like? Yeah. Um, I mean, Usually, I'd say the biggest feeling is when you just start getting any data at all, you know, as, as you start getting your first accumulation of your data. And it depends on the experiment. Some experiments, you do the entire thing, and then you get all the data at the end. Other types of experiments, which just tends to be what, what I do more often, is over time, you accrue more and more. Um, and, and I say that it feels good, uh, is a better feeling to get any data at all uh, for two reasons. One, because uh, it... It is, it, it is a very powerful moment because you're, you're kind of worried that it's not going to work out and whatnot and any number of things can happen. And once you finally get data, then it's kind of proof that, okay, at least the way I've set it up, you know, the equipment, the organisms that I picked, the way I'm doing this is working to some extent. But also because on the, on the flip side about um, the, act, the moment you were talking about where you, you kind of finally get the data at the end, um, in that circumstance, it's usually still a long process to actually be able to see what it is that your data show. Um, you know, you, you gotta, there's a, usually a pretty uh, uh, rigorous process of, of data uh, analysis and whatnot and statistics and whatnot. And we use a, a, a statistical computer coding uh, software called R uh, and it's just a constant struggle of trying to debug all of my code and everything like that. And it's usually after like, two, three months of figuring out how I want to look at it. Okay. Uh, that there were problems with this analysis. So I got to tweak it this way. Okay. Now I got to learn the code and whatnot. Um, and then, so there isn't as, as, as concrete of a moment as, as one might think where it's like an aha, whereas there is that moment for at least seeing that you're getting some data at all. Gotcha. So really the, the joy is, knowing you're making progress, not that you're done. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and oftentimes you don't really know that you're done until like in retrospect, you're like, okay, I guess I'm done. You know, you're like, you go into it with like a certain question you want to answer. And that is ultimately, you know, I'm not saying you're like, you know, some people will kind of like fish around trying all sorts of different statistical analyses to try and get something interesting, which is not the best way to do it. The best way to do it is to have the question that you want to answer in advance and go into it and do it that way uh, and target that. So, however, there's still, while targeting that general question, there's still going to be other kind of nuanced ways of analyzing it or kind of contextualizing it into the broader field of ecology or whatnot that, that kind of takes, a lot of 
of, of kind of uh, uh, mundane work and just sitting down and looking at your graphs and just thinking about it. Gotcha. So you're, you're like, you almost have to completely encase yourself in, in the, the, the question and the data you're getting and just kind of like mm -hmm. live in it. Yeah. And in part, because it's so, it's so complex. It almost never is going to go, you know, both in advance, you're going to have like, predictions where you know i predict this will be bigger than this so you know higher value than this and you know it'll mean x y and z and you can in advance kind of lay out what you think the data will show you and what you predict and what it would mean but ultimately it never is as clean cut as you would like it to be so there's all going to be all these caveats um so yeah it's a lot of sitting down and thinking about that gotcha and then also i mean i think it's pretty standard in the scientific community even if you release a study you have findings that's not the end of it anyway, because mm -hmm. someone else is going to look at that and be like, well, either I'm going to try to do that too, to make sure like see if it, the, the study kind of holds up, or maybe I'm going to build on that. Like, Ooh, that's an interesting idea. We can learn about this other thing through that. Yeah. Um, and then as you kind of look into your future, I mean, that's kind of where you're headed, right? I mean, this is, this mm -hmm. is your, your career in life is going to be in solving these problems through these um, experiments. What kind of, when you think about your future, what, what kind of comes up? Is it like anxiousness? Is it like, just like excitement? Like what, what feelings are brought up by looking at like ecology is going to be my future? Yeah. Um, one of the main things that I think about is, uh, is just the excitement at, being able to answer new questions and generate new knowledge that mankind, humankind didn't have before. Um, you know, one, one really cool thing about science, and it's really kind of the, the ultimate thing that drives me the most to be a scientist is the fact that we're answering questions that nobody knows the answer to. Like we're, 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 we're finding things out that you can't go onto Google and, and ask a question and get the answer to because nobody, nobody knows. Um, so I, I, I really see it as sort of a, a type of exploration of, of, of being on the front lines of, of the, the frontier of human knowledge that I really am looking forward to uh, doing a part, doing my part in. And in addition to that, I also, you know, if I hopefully do become a professor, then I will be uh, doing some teaching as well. And that's also something that I really enjoy. I've done some, uh, given some lectures before. And um, I like to, to kind of try new things to see what, what works to really capture the, the students' attention and, 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 and their curiosity. Uh, I like being goofy and making a fool of myself and, you know, making them laugh and whatnot and just trying to help kind of pass along my, my passion for the subject. Yeah. And I mean, part of, part of the basis of this podcast is very much, I mean, I mentioned in the, in the trailer for this podcast, like people's passions, if they're truly passionate about it, the, their passion is absolutely infectious because they are, you can tell like they care so much about this and in a role like as a professor, that doesn't, that is, that is so clear and so necessary because you are passing on this knowledge to the next generation. Some people might not, it might be like a gen ed. They might, mm -hmm. might not care as much, 
but I know in my life, the professors and teachers that I could tell had a, had a, had a passion for both the subject and teaching were the most effective teachers I've ever had, even in subjects I didn't care at all about. Um, I had one class when I, uh, when I studied abroad in England, I took an art history class, which ended up being like an art architecture, it's basically an architecture class. I didn't care at all about it. The lectures I didn't care about, but we had a seminar, like a group of 10 people met with like, he's like a retired professor. Hmm. And he was able to connect with us on a, another level where um, I was able to like go to him and like, Hey, I'm traveling to Paris this weekend. Where should I go? Like, what are the, what are the, the architectural wonders there? And he'd like, give me a list and be like, well, if you have a day free, I would go here, here and here. Um, and he like connected it with me. He was very much, he was aware that the international students were not there to master the subjects they're there for. It's more so right. the cultural experience. And that he was like the only professor that really understood that. Mm -hmm. Um, but like just the fact that he was so passionate about art and architecture, I went and I saw those. He's, he's, he sent me to a couple of cathedrals. Um, he sent me to the Rodin Museum, which I probably wouldn't have gone to. And a little hint to all you, everyone, all the listeners out there, if you're going to Paris and you're going to the Rodin Museum and you're just going to want to see the thinker, the, the famous statue made by Rodin. Uh-huh. Do not pay for the full museum. Ooh. The thinker is thinker in the price. The thinker is in the garden. So you just pay to go into the Pop garden. The oh. It's like it was like one or two euro to go into the garden and you can see uh -huh. the thinker. You can get, if you're really into sculpture, Rodin's an excellent uh, artist. So I'm sure the museum's great, but I was a poor college student, so the lady sure. at, the, at the ticket counter was very nice to me. <laughs> I think it's because I tried to speak French as I went up. I failed miserably. And I think she, she was both appreciative that I tried and also felt really bad for me how bad I did. Uh-huh. Um, but she And the fact out. that you didn't have any money in your wallet probably also contributed to it. That's true. But she couldn't tell right away. Okay. Uh, maybe she could sense the lightness of my wallet as I lifted right. it up. Um. The moths that flew away when you opened it. Exactly. And she could tell those were English moths, too, so she knew I wasn't oh, from yeah. the area, too. Yeah, and they were immediately going to become invasive and exactly. destroy the native, the native flora. Exactly. Yeah. And as ecologists, you know everything about that. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, so I guess kind of like to, heading towards the, the end of the conversation, um, I kind of want to know what, what do you want others – to understand about ecology or natural history or and the the way our, our nature interacts with each other and us like what what as someone who's made it their their career choice their life choice mm -hmm. what message do you have for everyone else because i feel like it's very important for uh, I, this we're being this is recorded in america um so like I think the message should go to Americans, but also everyone else in the world. What do you want to communicate to the world 
to the millions yeah. listening to this podcast. Yeah. Um, oh boy. Um, I mean, the first thing that pops into my head is, is uber cliche, uh, but I'm just going to say it anyway, uh, which is that, uh, you know, everything in ecology is like so intricately connected in nature and in ecosystems and whatnot. And everything has some sort of role and and some things have a little bit more of an influence than others, but everything from the, from mosquitoes to bacteria to, to, to fungi, it all plays a role and not, not because it, it, not because somebody put it there with that purpose, but just because over the hundreds of millions of years, it has developed to that point and everything around it has developed with it. And if you take anything out, then it's going to have consequences all around. And so I guess I, I say that for one, that I, I would like to, contr- uh, to, to convince other people of that, but also as like a source of my, my appreciation that I haven't said yet so far on this podcast is, is that is another reason why I'm so interested in it is, is just the way things that seem like are the most inconsequential things in the world can oftentimes have the largest influence in a, a, an ecosystem or in a community. Um, and that also, I think I, I would like to people to know that for one, just because it's a very beautiful concept, you know, of course you can come up with all sorts of uh, analogies to humankind and whatnot and societies and everything, but also uh, a little bit more tangentially is, is uh, you know, obviously there's a kind of a, a, a big problem of science denialism in, in America and the world as well. But uh, as you said, we're kind of thinking more so about Americans. Um, and, you know, especially this, this is more uh, uh, relevant to like climate change and whatnot. And I think a lot of people, when they think about humans of impact on the planet, don't stop to think about, you know, even if they do care about it, they don't stop to think about just how important even the the most plain, the most boring looking animal, plants, bacteria can be in a given food web or ecosystem or community. And how sometimes even just losing one species can have tremendous effects that cascade throughout the entire food web and can sometimes have detrimental impacts. And that is my final answer. Well, I think that's a, a very powerful statement and I feel like it's a very, it very literally demonstrates the butterfly effect. I mean, literally yeah. one little thing changes can have drastic effects on the, in the entire mm-hmm. ecosystem. I think it always is a good reminder. Uh, Cause I know some people are thinking like, well, I mean, realistically, if I don't recycle, what's going to happen? Well, I mean, if sure. everyone has that idea, then no one recycles and then we have all these issues. Or someone thinks like, oh, it's okay if I buy a bunch of disposable stuff because I'm going to recycle it. Well, recycling is still not the best option. Sure. Um, we should be reducing how much waste we have. Um, and I mean, I'm very much guilty of it as well. 
Um, but I think it's always good to have that reminder, like every little thing that we do affects the world we live in. And the reason we're alive is because the world we live in is alive. Yeah. Um, I think it's a, a really powerful statement. I think it really is important to have people like you who are doing those studies and learning how things interact specifically like your focus is on like how species interact. Like that knowledge is so important for us to maintain and hopefully kind of turn the tide we're going in and maybe even allow the, their, the earth to flourish into the future for generations to come. Uh, hopefully we don't blow us ourselves up before then, but <laughs> yeah. we'll see. But again, I just want to, this has been an enlightening conversation. Uh, I really appreciate you sharing your knowledge and again, sharing your passion for it with uh, the listeners and with me. Um, I know we, we talked before this that you're really not on social media. You don't really have a public presence. Um, but if you have any questions for Joey, um, I have his contact information. So feel free to shoot me an email. You, know, you can reach me at jeremy at what do you like podcast.com. Um, and I'll be more than happy to forward it to Joey. Um, try to keep it in the, the natural history environment. Um, but if you have other questions for him, I'm sure he'll, he'll entertain them. Uh, yes, I know, I know a lot about wrestling. Okay, so that's, that's a, a false statement. I will just answer those questions for Joey and pretend I'm Joey. Um, so don't worry about that. Um, but if you have any other questions or if you want to reach out about the podcast, um, obviously you listen to it now, but if you want to interact on social media, it's what do you like podcast on Instagram and W D Y L podcast on Twitter. Again, they're different. I'm new to this and not a social media professional, uh, but that's just how it is. Um, again, I just want to thank you, Joey. It's been an absolute pleasure. I hope we get to talk off podcast again soon. And maybe once, uh, once you're a full professor, we can have you on and we can talk more about the educational process and kind of the growth you had there. Yeah, definitely. Thanks a lot for having me. It's been a lot of fun. Absolutely. And for everyone else listening out there, uh, hope you enjoyed this podcast uh, and we'll see you next time. Boom goes the dynamite. Y'all got ding dong.